Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to Recharge for February 2019. In our features section this month, we ask whether lithium developers are shooting themselves in the foot by under-reporting operating costs. Currently, most lithium developers only report mine gate or C1 cash costs in their scoping and feasibility studies, and this is substantially lower than their actual cost may be. As an example, if you look at Roskill's cost curves for lithium brine producers in 2027, if I look on an ex-royalty basis, SQM is the world's lowest cost producer with a cash cost of just slightly over $2,000 per tonne. But if I include royalties, then SQM is a third quartile producer with costs closer to $5,000 per tonne. If I'm an investor and I buy SQM shares because I think it's the lowest cost producer in the world, I'm going to get a nasty shock when SQM reports its financials and it's significantly less profitable than I thought it was. Particularly if the lithium carbonate price is lower than it is at the moment, as it's want to be during a cycle, and I find that the company is not profitable. It's not just in brine, though, where there's a problem. The situation is just as bad in hard rock. Producers and developers are not including royalty calculations in their feasibility and scoping studies, and worse than that, many of them are not including overland transportation costs, sustaining capital costs, and seaborne freight costs. Since most spodumene concentrate is sold on a CFR China basis, that means including cost insurance and freight to China, they are understating costs quite considerably. In fact, we found that of the five hard rock producers whose studies we analyse, mine gate costs were only 40-60% to of total operating costs. That's a huge difference in potential profitability. And this is silly, because it suggests that the barriers to entry in lithium are lower than they actually are. While there are some world-class hard rock occurrences outside Australia, let's be realistic and say that those projects probably need integrated lithium hydroxide plants. And if that's the case, then the upfront capex and capital intensity for the projects needs to be higher. But as we saw with gold, it's up to the industry to police itself. Producers and developers must disclose all the information that investors need to make a realistic investment decision. Without doing so, they're going to find themselves even more out of vogue than they are currently. It's time for producers to report all in sustaining costs. We've already seen this work in the gold industry. Now it's time for battery materials companies to do it as well. Moving on, there's lots of interesting news in the battery materials space this month. In Cobalt, we're all left wondering about the unexpected result of the elections in the DRC. The new president, Felix Shishikedi, is a totally unknown quantity. He's promised to take a second look at the new mining code, which might be positive. But his party is also known to favour a larger state ownership in mining, which might be negative. All we know is that there's likely to be further uncertainty in the world's largest cobalt-producing nation. I came across quite an interesting presentation by Berkshire Hathaway Renewables on the extraction of lithium as a byproduct of geothermal energy production. The company denies that it's signed any deals in this business area, but if its presentation is anything to go by, it's only a matter of time. Cost curves in the presentation suggest that with the byproduct credit from the geothermal energy, its operations would be bottom of the cost curve and capital costs for over 90,000 tonnes per annum of lithium production from existing geothermal wells would be the order of $2 million. That's quite a healthy capital intensity. Another interesting lithium story we flag in this month's issue is that the Western Australian government is considering reopening the rail line between Tallison's Greenbush's lithium mine 
and Bunbury Port. This is in an effort to get trucks off the road. With the $800 million expansion of the mine going through, road train trips would more than travel to 200 per day, or one every eight minutes. Apparently, there's a pre-feasibility study in place, and the cost of the project to be met by the local government would be around 150 million Aussie dollars. It would presumably make a significant improvement to the profitability of the Greenbush's mine. Moving into batteries, Toyota and Panasonic announced plans to launch a battery joint venture. This is important because it would reduce Panasonic's dependence on Tesla, which looks relevant to the Japanese company because Tesla recently announced it would look at other battery suppliers for its gigafactory in China. It's also important for both Japanese companies which are trying to head off Chinese competition. The partnership still needs antitrust approval, but could launch by the end of 2020. In India, which has so far been a bit of a battery black hole, Bharat Heavy Electricals and Libcoin, a consortium made up of Magnus Energy Technologies, the Dougal Family Trust and Charge CCCV, announced plans to build a lithium-ion gigafactory. It would have initial capacity of one gigawatt hour, ramping up to 30. This follows a bit of a change in strategy by the Indian government on batteries. As we reported last month, they've deployed the second phase of their $800 million fame scheme to encourage local manufacturing of lithium-ion batteries, rather than offering financial incentives for EVs as they did in the first stage. Now they only have to worry about investing in charging infrastructure. No worries then. So no gold stars for the EIA's super conservative forecast on US EV demand. In fact, the study already looks out of date. As we flagged in our feature last month, it's not a surprise to us that EIA and IEA, and some oil companies we won't name, are super conservative on EVs. It's not like they don't have a vested interest or anything like that. The report forecasts that US EV sales will reach 1.3 million by 2025. But given that 2018's US EV sales were 358,000, and they have a three-year growth rate of 47% per annum, this looks stupidly low. Sticking with EVs, and Bloomberg New Energy Finance published an interesting study that found that CO2 emissions for battery-powered vehicles were around 40% lower than for internal combustion engine vehicles in 2018. The difference between emissions was largest in the UK, which of course boasts a large renewable power generation component. But the relationship still held firm in China, which is far more reliant on coal for power generation. BNEF suggests that EVs will become cleaner still in coming years as the contribution of renewables to power generation continues to grow. Finishing up the news roundup with an energy storage story. Abu Dhabi has turned on a 108 megawatt sodium sulfur battery plant, which has about five times the storage capacity of the lithium ion system that Tesla installed in Australia. And what's more, it's virtual, with the batteries installed at about 10 different locations, although they can all be controlled by a single plant. The battery can produce about six hours of backup power if the Abu Dhabi grid goes down. That's a serious battery. So that's a brief roundup of the 32 pieces of news flow we've got this month. We also have 26 exploration company updates, 13 development, 14 finance or M&A, 11 earnings, and six battery and technology updates. Just to pick out some key ones, we highlight two companies in our drill bit section this month. The first is Australian Mines, which had some strong drill results from extensional drilling at its Sconey project in Queensland, Australia. They've already recorded near-surface intercepts of over 1% cobalt over a strike length in excess of one kilometre. And in these results from 21st January, they had a five-metre interval at 0.8% cobalt. The second 
is AVZ minerals, which we've highlighted before. These guys have discovered one of the biggest hard rock lithium deposits in the world at Monono in DRC, and they continue to have world-class results from their extensional drilling program there. They had a massive intercept of 210 metres at 1.7% lithium oxide. They released a scoping study last year and are now pushing forward into feasibility work. There was a fair amount of movement in capital markets as well this month. China molybdenum agreed to buy a 24% stake in the Tenki Fungarumi mine in DRC to take its holding in the operation to 80%, with the remaining stake held by Jekamine. Sticking with Cobalt, Cobalt 27 Capital Corp made a friendly $115 million takeover offer for Highlands Pacific, which holds an 8.5% interest in the producing Ramu nickel copper mine. Gervois Mining and M2 Cobalt announced a merger, bringing Gervois shareholders exposure to M2's cobalt exploration assets in Uganda. LSC Lithium agreed to be acquired by Plus Petrol, valuing it at 111 million Canadian dollars. And Pilbara Minerals reported that it secured a 110 million US dollar funding package from a number of Chinese groups that should see its commitment for the second stage of the Pilgangura project fully financed. In production news, Sira Resources declared commercial production at its Balama graphite mine in Mozambique about a year after commissioning. It expects to ship about 250,000 tonnes this year. In battery news, there was a fascinating study published in the scientific journal Joule, which compared the cost competitiveness of different types of battery in energy storage applications. It concluded that the lithium-ion batteries would be the most cost-competitive chemistry in the majority of applications by 2030, with the sole exception being long discharge applications. EV news is dominated by the fact that 2 million EVs were sold in 2018. Wow! Double wow when you consider that that is off a level of 314,000 EVs sold in 2014. Given that many commentators hadn't expected the 2 million level to be breached until 2025, this is a humongous success and highlights again my view that most commentators are underestimating EV sales growth rates. I'll flag the feature article in the last issue again and point you towards the analysis there for exact numbers. Unsurprisingly, China was again the engine of the EV sales machine, shifting 1.09 million units in 2018, and it doesn't show too many signs of slowing either. Despite a slowdown in the broader Chinese consumer, EVs are rapidly becoming must-haves for Chinese families, and this bodes well for sales growth in coming years. While EVs are going great guns, and storage is growing well off a low base, consumer applications of batteries unfortunately aren't going quite so well, and Chinese smartphone sales were down again in Q4 2018, for the fifth consecutive quarter. It remains to be seen whether global smartphone sales were down, but the consumer demand side of batteries certainly isn't going as well as the renewable side of the business. In raw materials trade, the big story is flake graphite, where net exports fell off a cliff in the fourth quarter. Now, I won't plug loads of statistics, but there's a chart in there for flake graphite net exports. And let's just say, I've been a China watcher for over 15 years now, and I've seen charts that shape before in other commodities, primarily those where people said China would never be a net importer, like metallurgical coal and zinc. And they started off exactly the same before China moved to a significant net import position in those materials. That chart is one of the reasons for our positive view on graphite producers and developers this year. And the other main reason is that although graphite commodity prices have held up quite well, 
equities have performed in line with the rest of the battery materials complex, i.e. really badly. It's as if the market thinks that all parts of the battery materials space are the same. But as we know, they're not, which to me makes graphite developers and producers well worth a look. I'm not going to flag specific stocks as that's outside the scope of this product, but look at our chart of Chinese graphite prices versus our BMR graphite equities basket, and then tell me that that underperformance looks justified. In all of our other baskets, the basket performs in line with the underlying commodity price behavior. In graphite, it's totally at odds with it. Enough said. And that brings us to the end of our roundup for this month. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discovered in the magazine, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Until next month. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.